0: Welcome to Upahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Dion, one of your hosts, and I'm here with my co-host, Rachel
1: Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim, and hello to our listeners. So this week, we feature a really urgent and informative conversation that I had with Nisreen Alamin, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto, Um, Her work investigates the connections between land, race, belonging, and empire-making in Sudan and the broader Sahel region, and she's currently working on a really fantastic and interesting book project based on 15 months of ethnographic fieldwork in central Sudan which examines the ways landless and landholding communities are negotiating and contesting changes in land ownership prompted by a recent wave of domestic and Gulf-Arab co- corporate investments in Sudanese land. In our conversation, we focus on the conflict in Sudan, the meaning, the causes, and what's happening.
0: I'm really grateful that you got to chat with Nisran Elamine last week and that We'll get to share that conversation you had with her. I've been following her work ever since she was a graduate student, actually, and she had co-written a piece with Zachariah Mompili about protests in Sudan, right? Years ago, right before the current conflict broke out, right, where there seemed to be this really incredible popular movement towards democracy. Um, It was just a great piece on why we shouldn't call these protests bread riots, um, why there was something much more. And and I've really just ever since then, you know, that's years ago, I can't even remember what year it was, it was so long ago, published in the Washington Post. But ever since then, um, I've known her as this voice that we should be listening to um, because she's an expert on the major political and social issues facing Sudan and Sudanese people. And she's also close to the situation personally, which is a rare combination. Um, I know that you had some follow-up with her after the conversation, and she pointed you to some more resources. Can you share those with
1: our listeners who are interested in knowing more and
0: and ways to support those in need?
1: Absolutely, Kim. And So she pointed us to Radio Dabanga, which is an excellent source of news on Sudan in English, and Sudan Tribune. If, and if people wish to donate to Sudan Solidarity Fund, they can go to the website org. We'll post these links on our show notes. She also mentioned that an important advocacy ba- page is KeepEyesOnSudan.net. So these are ways in which people can keep informed, but also uh, help the situation uh, in terms of providing aid and support to those who are uh, really very much in need right
0: so often when we read about conflict in the news we're thinking about kind of the the key players who are making decisions about the movement of security forces or um rebels or soldiers right whoever the combatants are and we forget about people right the people who are themselves experiencing conflict firsthand and so these resources that she shared with us i think um can give can give our listeners a chance to think from that perspective, right, the, the people who are navigating the um, the very difficult and tragic nature of of this ongoing conflict. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to bring our listeners' attention to a piece in foreign policy written by Clayton Boyank, a research fellow at the Center of African Studies at the University of Edinburgh, and Stephanie Schwartz, an assistant professor in international relations at the London School of Economics. Now, the piece is titled, Tanzania's Threat to Expel Burundians Sets a Dangerous Precedent. In this piece, Boyenck and Schwartz write about how the Tanzanian government has renewed threats to forcibly repatriate more than 100,000 Burundian refugees if they do not return to Burundi voluntarily. In addition to fleeing Burundi multiple times, many Burundians have also been displaced from Tanzania, the state that's provided them refuge. When refugees were forcibly repatriated to Burundi from Tanzania in 2012, many were not welcomed back into their communities. Some found their homes and land occupied after having been gone for decades, and this was a significant obstacle in a tiny country where the majority relies on small-scale agriculture to survive. And so they really, it's a very um, land-pressured environment in Burundi. Other returnees ended up in something called peace villages where living conditions were pretty dire. Competition for land often turned violent And when another crisis came around in 2015, many of these returnees were among the first to flee Tanzania again. Now Stephanie Schwartz's research has focused on this issue of kind of movement of Burundian refugees in the conflicts surrounding land. And I would point our listeners in particular to her 2019 research article in International Security titled Home Again, Refugee Return and Post-Conflict Violence in Burundi. Um, And Again, we'll link this study in um, in the show notes as well. In that study, Schwartz found return migration creates new identity divisions based on whether and where individuals were displaced during wartime. So these divisions, right? Whether you you know were a person a Burundian who left for Tanzania or a Burundian who stayed, right? These these identity divisions became new sources of conflict. Um, when local institutions, such as land codes, citizenship regimes, or language laws, yield different outcomes for individuals based on where they lived during the war. Now, for that article, Stephanie collected ethnographic evidence in Burundi and Tanzania from 2014 to 2016, and that data shows how the return of refugees created violent rivalries b- between Burundian returnees and the people who didn't leave Burundi. Consequently, when Burundi this national level political crisis in 2015, the prior experiences of return shape both the character and timing of outmigration from Burundi. And so that research that Schwartz Schwartz did is essential for understanding why this latest move by the Tanzanian government matters. She found then, and she cautions us now, that reverse population movements can shape future conflict. And this is why breaking the cycle of forced repatriation, right, This cycle of return and repeat displacement is essential to preventing conflict in the future.
1: Kim, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I mean, we definitely kind of have this, the sense of uh, how this happens across space and time. And so it's really useful for us to see this historical example and to be able to trace the consequences of such forced repatri- repatriation um, as in real time, these policies are, are being debated once again. Um, I also wanted to provide our listeners a quick update on the elections in Madagascar that we chatted about last week. And we gave kind of the context of the opposition and the um, incumbent president, Um President Rajolina, who is running for a third term. So the elections were were held this week for president, um, just voting closed out on Thursday. And um, in, in this case, as we mentioned, the opposition candidate did um, encourage a boycott after weeks of violent protests in the run-up to polling day. And in particular, the boycott... Um, was issued in in part because of their uh, the contention that the electoral commission uh, needed to be changed and that a special court should be set up to hear vote disputes and um, that the vote itself should be. Postponed because of irregularities and concern over the eligibility of the incumbent president in this third term. So the opposition had their set of concerns. Um, and it, then ultimately, since those concerns were not heeded after following weeks of marches and protests, um, the opposition called for a boycott. And indeed, that's what the voting turnout looked uh, like. Um, election: The election itself unfolded peacefully because most people stayed away from the polls. Um, there was low low key security presence across the capital, but the general election was marked by low turnout. So there were some lines in areas that were strongholds for the current president, Rajalina, um, and the. That looks like it was about uh, 30% voter turnout in those stronghold areas for the incumbent, whereas just about 15% in opposition strongholds. So this really is quite low turnout signaling broader public disdain towards the vote and the process and the kind of set of options and choices that they've been given. Um, Rajalina himself dismissed these calls for delay as a political tactic and warned opponents that trying to prevent people from voting was unlawful. The vote was held. And while we don't yet have um, final results from the Electoral Commission, uh, we can estimate from this generally very low turnout that the results will be overwhelmingly in the president's favor.
0: Right. And so he's allowed to seek a third
1: term. This isn't extra constitutional for him to do. Right. So there are these debates over the constitutionality of such a term, but because of the breaks in his former uh, period, um, he's making the claim uh, along with the courts that he's eligible. You know, this is like the tactic that we've seen across many different incumbents who use either constitutional changes or breaks within their uh, ruling um their regime, their rule, um, to, to be able to contest again, according to maybe the letter of the law, but not necessarily the spirit
0: Spirit of it. Yeah. That's, um, that's interesting, right? Um, it's amazing to me, men who lose the audacity they have, right. (laughs) To be like, oh, well, actually I'm, I'm pretty awesome at this. And, uh, even though I lost, um,
1: I should have another go.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, so okay that's um that's we'll, we'll continue to follow um what happens uh and we'll see you know what exactly we you know how many people turn out to vote and and what the the um the final count looks like. Exactly. Um, and so we have that let's have a listen to Rachel's conversation with Nisrin Elamine.
1: Right, Welcome, Nisreen and We are so pleased to have you here on the podcast and with us here at Cornell University. It's really a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm particularly... I'm glad that we can have this conversation because we would love for you to explain to our listeners a little bit about what's happening in Sudan, to put into context um, the conflict that we are not necessarily reading enough about in the newspapers and hearing about uh, through the media. So can you tell our listeners kind of how you would describe what's happening now and how you might root it in longer histories of of um, Sudan?
2: Yes, thank you. Um, so, I mean, I would uh, describe the current war as a power struggle between um, kind of two factions of the military coup regime. Um, there was a coup in October of 2021. Um, and in April of this year, um, essentially the, the the rapid support forces, which is a state sanctioned militia and the Sudanese armed forces, um, you know, started fighting uh, in the capital, Khartoum, um, and vying really for economic and political power um, of the country uh, as we were coming closer to, um, you know, a potential sort of tilting uh, during the transitional period of power towards civilian civilians. Um, And so part of how people explain Uh, What triggered this is that um, there was an agreement in December um, of of, uh, 2022 that essentially outlined uh, how the army was going to integrate uh, the rapid support forces into its ranks. um, And also, um, the agreement also had some uh, provisions around uh, uh, military elites handing over Uh, or giving civilian oversight over uh, companies that they were owning. So just for uh, your listeners to know, about 80% of Sudan's economy is controlled by um, military elites. On the one side, you have um, the gold trade that is mostly uh, controlled by the rapid support forces. And on the other hand, you have about 200 companies Uh, controlled by uh, elites within the army, um, construction, rubber, wheat, um, uh, and other commodities. Um, And so there was a kind of push during the transition to really have those companies be, you know, overseen by civilians. Um, So I think those two things triggered it. I mean, there's much larger kind of underlying issues that caused this war. And I would describe it as a long war that really started um, in 1955, right, with the beginning of the South Sudanese War. We could even trace it further back to the 19th century. But um, yeah, I think that's, that's how I would describe it. And I I wanted to maybe read a short excerpt um, from That's something great. that I wrote recently uh, to kind of just yeah historically situate this. Um, so Sudan's December revolution, um, which started in 2018, is often compared to Sudan's 1964 revolution, sparked by clashes between students and police at the University of Khartoum before mushrooming into a kind of broader movement that toppled Aboud's military regime or to the 1985 revolution triggered by price hikes that toppled uh, Jahfar Namiri's regime. Um, But I would like to trace its genealogy back to the 1950s. Um, And I'll begin at independence. Uh, Britain's parting gift to Sudan at independence in 1956 was an economy dependent on the extraction of cash crops like cotton and on the exploitation of farmers and landless workers and a political system which was constructed to serve the interests of a riverine central Sudanese elite at the expense of the south and other peripheral regions, but also of a rural population that that sustained this extractive export-oriented economy. Some of the initial forms of resistance against the new post-colonial state unsurprisingly came from tenant farmers who organized to demand, among other things, a greater share of profits as world cotton prices plummeted. A strike took place on a cotton scheme near Kosi shortly after independence and the state responded with extreme violence. Over 300 striking tenant farmers were shot on the fields or suffocated in detention cells. Um, Elders in my family are still haunted by the tragedy of farmers suffocating in overcrowded, kind of poorly ventilated cells. A year earlier, Sudan's first civil war had broken out between South Sudanese demanding political representation and regional autonomy and the central government who had essentially subsumed the South as a quasi-internal colony. This 56, 1956 massacre is linked to the Civil War because striking farmers were threatening existing capitalist labor relations that allowed ruling elites to extract maximum profits to fund its repressive campaign against Southern rebels. And I I think this moment is important because it reveals the way state violence in Sudan has long been shaped by the need to reproduce and maintain an extractive war economy that serves elite interests by any means necessary. And in more recent decades, certainly under the al-Bashir regime, we saw this manifest itself in the form of an ethno-nationalist, monocultural, Islamist project being imposed on a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious country in violent ways. And we saw this plate south out in Darfur, where a state-sanctioned campaign of unimaginable violence led by the Janjaweed, now known as the Rapid Support Forces, was carried out beginning in 2003. And during this genocide, um, hundreds of thousands were killed, uh, entire villages were wiped out, um, millions uh, were displaced. And while this campaign went through various phases, this violence never really ended. It fell out of the headlines, but it never ended, it expanded. And the long war essentially came to the capital on April 15th. Um, and so we see this play itself out now with, as I mentioned, various military action uh, actors and factions um, vying not only for political, but also economic control of the country. Um, and so while it started as a power struggle in April, it has expanded um, in ways that um, are really concerning at the moment. I think many of us are worried that. Um, We're seeing the RSF gain ground in the western part of Sudan, Darfur, but also other um, areas. um, uh, And essentially pushing the army out. Um, And really, we're seeing very similar violence that we saw in 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then you see the army in other parts of the country. um, They're still fighting in, in central Sudan, especially around Khartoum. Um, but there are, you know, Port Sudan and other, the eastern parts, um, kind of central and northern parts of Sudan, um, <clears throat> you see the army have, you know, uh, remained in control. And so there's a fear that we might see a kind of splintering of the state right? Mm-hmm. that began with South Sudan seceding in 2011, in part because we haven't um, really dealt with uh, the roots of of this violence in Sudan
1: exactly and when you say that the rsf you know the kind of violence that there uh that that is happening uh harkens back to 2003 um does that mean in the sense a kind of you know targeting um, uh, uh, how would you describe the ways in which the violence is affecting civilians. Uh, how is it affecting, you know, kind of everyday life in in Sudan, as it as it were? Yeah, I mean, I I think
2: um, when I was in Khartoum in April, um, and the war broke out, I had never seen something like this in Khartoum. Right, we were surrounded by bombs, missiles, explosions, and the RSF was mostly um, on the ground. Um, while the sudanese armed forces were kind of controlling the airspace Mm -hmm. right um and it was fairly random in a sense i mean they were fighting each other in the capital targeting um uh you know important kind of infrastructures of power if you will Mm -hmm. um uh, and of course you know sudan i mean khartoum is a is a city of millions um i think it's about you know, seven to nine million, depending on how you calculate it, because it's made up of kind of three sister cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a very densely populated capital city. Uh, and we're all caught in this violence. Now, when um, the violence uh, started in Darfur, I, I should say it, it, it even in March before the war started, there was continuing to be violence in Darfur. But when this um, kind of phase of the war came to Darfur, um, it took on a different form. Mm. Um, as bad as it was in Khartoum, um, we saw in in Darfur, in particular in the western city of Al Jazira, uh, much more targeted killings um, that were, yeah, targeting particular ethnic groups, um, the Masalit in particular. Uh, there was one day, I think it was in June, um, where 1,000 people were killed, um, and. Of course, there there are no bodies that are officially able to kind of gather data on this. But what we know is that El has essentially been cleansed, if you will. Mm-hmm. People have had to flee um, to Chad and on the journey have also been targeted. Um, and so it really harkens back to what happened in 2003. Um, and the origins of that, I think, are also um, not often... I think not often enough talked about, Mm -hmm. um, which is that you had uh, these Arab identified um, ethnic groups from which the RSF draws uh, many of its kind of uh, recruits. who come from these kind of Arab identified pastoralist groups, um, who for, you know, centuries had been um, moving across the landscape of Darfur, but with desertification, um, there was kind of increasing conflict over over land, right, Mm -hmm. with uh, more sedentary kind of farming communities, um, including the Thor and the Masalit, uh, who are African identified. And uh, part of what happened in 2003 is that the Sudanese government, instead of uh, de-escalating uh, these conflicts, uh, ended up, uh, you know, arming um, the pastoralists um, and who then became the Janjaweed, um, you know, to attack uh, these communities. Um, and you know, we, we've had for decades, if not centuries. Uh, traditional methods of resolving conflicts where a third party would come in and uh, peace agreements would be signed and, and you know, um, yeah, conflicts were resolved. Mm-hmm. And so what this did is it really undermined those systems yes. that had been in place for so long. Uh, and so I think this is part of what I look at now in my work, at the way that pastoralists, uh, because of agribusiness um, and kind of other corporate... Um, mm-hmm. Gulf investments, et cetera, continue to be marginalized and as a result become vulnerable to recruitment right. by groups like the RSF. Um, and that is not at all, of course, to excuse any of this violence, um, okay. but to explain that um, in order for us to not keep going back to this uh, never again violence, right, we have to um, address the root causes, uh, which include um, yeah, addressing the the grievances of marginalized groups across the country. absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what has happened in Indian and what is now happening in other parts of Darfur, the same thing that happened in Indian just uh, last week happened in the la- in the last couple of days happened in other parts of Darfur. Um, and it is horrific. I mean, I I have a close friend who was in Niala until quite recently, and. She said she had not experienced this kind of violence before even though she lived through the 2003 uh, genocide and so i think that to me gave me a lot of pause to think about how is it that we are living once again through something like this um and for the most part the world has remained silent it's not hasn't and it's not to say that um i for one i'm i'm i'm, I'm not uh, I'm not an advocate of of international intervention mm-hmm. um but I am in in the sense of you know a military intervention or something like this mm-hmm. but I am um in support of the war criminals not being legitimized and propped up through these continued uh so-called peace talks that are happening in Jeddah mm-hmm. um, that really provide a green light for this to continue, mm-hmm. that legitimize the war rather than um, allow us as Sudanese, should have happened a long time ago, to bring the perpetrators of the violence that happened in 2003. I mean, Al-Burhan and Hemiti, Hemitis as the head of the RSF, mm-hmm. Al-Burhan, the head of the Sudanese Armed Forces, are, are war criminals whose Crimes span decades, you know, including in Darfur, and the fact that they continue Mm -hmm. to be propped up and legitimized as potential reformists, as potential peacemakers, Mm -hmm. um, is partly what has gotten us, uh, you know, to be at the stage of of that something like this can happen again.
1: Exactly, that they're the stakeholders, so to speak, who are brought around the table... Um and so I want there there are so many things here that are are really important to kind of dig into and one is, right this international role, and while um you know there's a there's a a big scale um uh, on the spectrum from international intervention to what we might think of as um using international um. Forums for justice or thinking about the kinds of dialogues and who's involved around um, peace to um, on the other end of the scale, just like mere awareness of what's happening, concern, right, knowledge. Um, so what do you think, given that, I mean, it seems as though the kind of conversation around Sudan is at the global level really off the map because of many other um, tragedies and atrocities, but also, um, you know, even um, maybe for other reasons as well. So how do you, how would you situate that in terms of the role of the international and some of the, the vacuum around uh, um, knowledge or engagement?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, thank you. So I think maybe one thing I'll start with because I we haven't talked about it yet is um, the humanitarian situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, recently the UN issued a report um, that stated that uh, we are currently the largest internal displacement crisis in the world, um, with over uh, 7.1 million people displaced. Um, and that includes some who were displaced before the war. Um, and some people estimate that it's actually closer to 10 million. Uh, it's obviously hard in this context to gather data with very few international organizations on the ground. Mm-hmm. We have 19 million children that are out of school. Um, the vast majority of hospitals in the areas that are affected by this war are not operating anymore. Um, I have relatives who are uh, remain in and around Khartoum who are diabetic, for example, who cannot access medication. Mm-hmm. There are people who are dying of malaria because they cannot access medication. About 25 million um Sudanese and you know we have a population of about 45 million is at risk of uh, famine essentially in a country that was once touted as a breadbasket of the middle east right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and so the fact that this you know that uh, sudan is one of the sort of largest uh, humanitarian crises i don't like to word the, use the word crises but mm-hmm. uh, for this particular purpose in the world and that there's very little attention on it i think is about several things. I think part of it has to do with the fact that wars um, in Africa and particularly in the Horn are normalized Mm -hmm. um, due to anti-Black racism. And um, it's sort of seen as, you know, these are, this is an internal conflict that um, Mm -hmm. has been going on for so long and it's very complicated. And, you know, it's far away from us. um, When in reality, I mean, the political economy of war makes us all complicit, right? If we think about uh, the military companies that are benefiting from this, uh, the corporate interests that are uh, you know, at stake here. I study um, Gulf, specifically Emirati and Saudi land investments in Sudan. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the past two decades uh, under al-Bashir, but also during the transition, Saudis and Emiratis have invested a combined $27 billion in Sudanese land and real estate and infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we have to understand the role of Saudi Arabia in Jeddah and the talks and the uh, peace talks that just concluded that did not lead to a ceasefire um, as within that context, right, of um, the Gulf also wanting to maintain its, um, to protect its investments to maintain stability over any form of democratic civilian rule. Um, And, you know, we also have to think about the ways that, um, for example, the European Union in 2014 um, uh, used the cartoon process, which was about kind of essentially externalizing the European Union's border to the region between Sudan, Egypt, and Libya, mm-hmm. um, paid the Sudanese government under Al-Bashir at the time um, around $200 million to militarize that border. And uh, Al-Bashir used the RSF for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there you saw a kind of um, beginning of a legitimization of the Janjaweed, right, turning uh, and um, and a kind of expansion of their transnational network. Um, so, yeah, You so you saw a kind of, um, uh, I mean, they had already been legitimized prior to that, but uh, actually, especially during the, um, the civil war in Yemen, uh, the, uh, the Saudi coalition used both RSF troops and um, Sudanese armed forces troops to fight in that war. And again, you know, thereby uh, expanding their transnational networks of support. Um, and so, I think part of what happens is that because um, the US has mostly played a more kind of diplomatic role um, in in my view, really undermining um the more radical elements of the revolution uh and of um who were demand who were calling for uh very clearly for a transition to full civilian rule from the very beginning after Al-Bashir was ousted in April of um 2019. Um And we saw during the transitional period, power was always tilted in favor of the military elites, even though civilian elites were kind of brought into the fold. Um, And the United Nations, um, under kind of, you know, the U.S., uh, the U.K., United Arab Emirates, um, uh, were essentially, during the transitional period, Um, not only sidelining neighborhood resistance committees, for example, which are these um, grassroots uh, committees at the neighborhood level that uh, formed really in the kind of Arab Spring 2013 moment. I mean, they have their origins traced back even further, but um, to mobilize people in protest against the state, but we're also filling um, a kind of vacuum left behind by an essentially absent state um, to provide, yeah, services and support to people in their neighborhoods. Um, they were the ones, for example, who led the COVID nineteen kind of awareness campaign um, and so forth. Um, that they were really they had set out revolutionary charters that said no partnership, no legitimacy, um, uh, and no negotiations with the military elites. Uh, both before and after the coup. and um were really not taken seriously as political actors, even though there are eight thousand of them across the country. Um, they're hierarchically organized, but h- quite highly like coordinated and organ, you know, um And so, you know, there were times when, for example, uh, the UNITAMS negotiations team uh, asked them, you know, to join the negotiation table. There was one moment I remember uh, when the resistance committee said they would, but only if it was uh, Facebook li- like uh, aired live on Facebook, right, to make that process more transparent. And um, the negotiations team refused, and so uh, there was a purposeful, I think, um, marginalization of those more radical elements of the revolution in favor of a process that um yeah that that prioritized stability over uh popular democracy um and but my point is that even though the U.S. – I mean, they have their own corporate interests, but the U.S. in Sudan isn't playing as big of a role as the Gulf players, in my view. Mm -hmm. Um, Russia has also recently entered – not so recently, but has entered the war as well, both the Wagner Group and the Russian state, mostly on the side of the RSF. Um, And so the U.S.'s role has been also shaped by its very myopic policy around – Countering kind of Russian and Chinese influence on the continent, rather than on thinking about what is best for Sudan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think part of what's happening that I see on the U.S. left, at least, is that we need to decenter U.S. empire mm-hmm. in some ways and and the U.S. in order to better understand the political economy of this war and how we are all implicated in it. Um, uh, in, in some ways. It's the Gulf states, the the allies of the United States, that are that are shaping uh, U.S. policy towards Sudan. It doesn't really have a policy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and again, I should say that I I am, and this is you know my own kind of politics. I feel like uh, this is a moment. The revolution was an opportunity to uh, say hands off Sudan. Right. Um, To really have all of these negative forms of international intervention kind of be exposed and removed. Um, We've now come to a point where it's hard to imagine that. Um, And we do need pressure on the warring factions who are mostly accountable. To to these external actors who are fueling the war, mm-hmm. um, Egypt, for example, is fueling the war on on the Sudanese armed forces side, right? So to have peace talks that don't include the Gulf, the, the UAE in particular, or Egypt, um, means that we won't they won't be able to leverage the kind of pressure needed to to actually, um, yeah, to, to actually bring about a ceasefire, which is what's needed at the moment. Um, I mean, a couple of months ago, when I was talking about this, uh, you know, the people that I, you know, my mentors would say, we need a, the international community to have a coordinated effort, right? To to bring about a ceasefire. Uh, at the, and at that time, there were three tracks. There was an AU EGOD peace talk track. There was an Egypt track, and there was the Jeddah talk, track. Um, and that once that ceasefire happens, then we need to kind of step out of the way and let the resistance committees and and the kind of civilian actors who have been sidelined in this transition process um, guide what the next steps are. That that process needed to be much more Sudanese led, more civilian led, and also led by people in the peripheries that have been impacted by this long war in a way that the center has not. so far, all, I mean, the the Sudanese armed forces have signed twenty seven peace agreements over the last couple of decades. Um, and none of them have led to peace, right? right? Um, and so peace is really being used as a currency here to uh, legitimize continued state violence. And um and I think, yeah, this is a moment to 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 rethink that model that hasn't worked. Um, and to rethink it then
1: both both, as you're suggesting, international actors who are fueling the conflict and and in some ways legitimizing through those um, peace deals um and as well as um as you're mentioning the role of civil society and and domestic actors and one of the things i wanted to have you tell us a little bit more about uh, is the landscape of what we might call civil society. Sudan certainly has this iconic imagery of the importance of civil society during the revolution, um, the role of women, um, youth, et cetera. Um, But then also, as you're saying, there's so much about organization through the neighborhood groups, um, the neighborhood resistance committees, um, and those seem to my uneducated eye, like very interestingly structured and in a way that maybe is distinct from what we think of as kind of formalized NGOs and um, more politicized or institutionalized internationally linked um civil society groups um that often maybe become detached from a more grassroots politics needs social services so i was wondering if you could tell us more about this landscape of civil society how it's structured and and then what role could could they have and do they have um towards that that piece that really meaningful piece
2: mm-hmm. yeah i know that's a very important question um especially because I think in many ways, the Sudanese revolution could and has um, served as a model um, for what popular democracy um, and a kind of challenge to elite politics in the region might look like. Um, So, I mean, I should start by saying that the Bashir regime, when it came to power in 1989, um, one of its mandates um, was to really um decimate and um kind of undermine uh trade unions and kind of civil society the vibrant civil society mm-hmm. uh that um in the past had challenged uh military rule we've mostly most of our life um most of Sudan's you know post-colonial life has uh we've been under military rule um and so they're kind of learning from the past um and so through that, efforts, um, much of the kind of more, again, radical organizing went underground. Um, the 90s was a particularly brutal era of uh, repression um, where people were tortured, prison, imprisoned. Um, not many people went into exile. Um, and we saw a kind of parallel uh, emergence of a kind of civil society that was very much controlled by the state, um, so NGOs that were really state entities in a way that would be registered through something called the HAC, um, which is an agency that, um, yeah, legitimizes NGOs, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, parallel to that, you did see the emergence of um, a kind of civil society that, in many ways, resisted NGOization, mm-hmm. right? That um, So these neighborhood resistance committees, especially um, over the last decade, um, also unions. Uh, I work in uh, rural parts of Sudan where there are definitely neighborhood resistance committees, but there are also other civil society formations like unions, like this farmer's union. It's an independent union that kind of emerged uh, in response to the kind of more government um, affiliated uh, union um, to really challenge um, the government's practice of Uh, privatizing and pushing neoliberal reforms in the agricultural sector Mm -hmm. uh, that forced a lot of small farmers into debt um, who then sold their land to state elites um, as part of their project of um, attracting Gulf investors, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, you also have... uh, in this region of Sudan called the Jazeera, which is kind of like a delta um, right south of Khartoum, very fertile area of land, um, most of the labor performed on those farms is performed, 70% of it is performed by landless farm workers, uh, some of whom are displaced from the various regions of Sudan that had been at war. Um, But also you have a community of people who are Sudanese, but originally from uh, Northern Nigeria, so they're hausa, who settled when the British established uh, the Jazira scheme um, kind of recruited, they were on their way to Mecca and and stayed. Um, And so they have their own associations that are very much challenging uh, the legal framework that um, Mm -hmm. we inherited from the British um, that has allowed the state to dispossess people of their land. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, there are, I think, these really vibrant kind of civil society formations. In fact, the period between uh, the the ousting of al-Bashir in April of 2019 and the October 2021 20, coup saw an unprecedented number of civil disobedience kind of organizing from communities in South Kordofan successfully organizing against um, mining companies and their use of cyanide and mercury. Mm-hmm. Um, to the teachers union in Darfur, uh, organizing strikes, port workers in Port Sudan, um, uh, organizing against the privatization of that port. There have been many people who have been, the, the Russians, the uh, Turkish um, uh, government has tried to kind of um, acquire parts of that port. And you know, um, so they've organized against that. Um, and so there have been the longest worker strikes in Sudan's history during this period as well. Um, So I think what we really saw during the revolution was a kind of politicization of civil society um, in a way that not only that sort of defied or uh, resisted NGOization, but also um, kind of traditional uh, opposition party politics. Um, And so the resistance committees have purposefully not aligned themselves with opposition parties. In fact, They're ideologically, I mean, the organizing um, kind of happens across ideological lines. And the committees are quite different, you know, whether, because there are some in very wealthy neighborhoods in Khartoum, and then there are some in, you know, um, more rural parts of the country or, uh, you know, in cities uh, in Darfur, where um, the analysis, the political analysis around what needs to happen for Sudan to finally become free, if you will, um, and, and fully democratic is different, right, based on people's relationship to the state and state violence. Um, So I think, you know, um, what's important for me, uh, for people to understand is that um, these same resistance committees that were not taken seriously during the transition as political actors are now essentially doing the work of an absent state and of an absent international humanitarian uh, community, mm. right in the areas that are most um kind of hard hit by the war, uh, Khartoum, Darfur, uh, Kordofan, um, they members of resistance committees have organized something called emergency response rooms, um, community they've you know organized communal kitchens. Uh, these response rooms attend to the medical needs of people. Um, they distribute food. Um, people have been converting schools into displacement shelters. Um, and I, I should say that this is amidst war, right? I mean, there are uh, people; these volunteers are being targeted, um, imprisoned. Uh, some of them forcibly, you know, um, you know, people tried to forcibly recruit some people into uh, either side, and and there are some resistance committees that have started siding with the army because of the way this war has evolved. Um, but all that to say that. I think that to us should show us that the resistance committees are very capable of uh, guiding what the path forward should look like. I often, as a diaspora person, as a professor at the University of Toronto, get asked, you know, what is the path forward? Um, How do we get out of this mess? Uh, Right. Um, um, And I say, you know, part of the problem is that the wrong people get asked that question. Mm -hmm. I, as a person in the diaspora, should not. Define, I should not answer that question, right? It needs to come um from the people who remain um, you know, on the ground, uh essentially continuing the revolution, right? Mm-hmm. This is a new phase of the revolution. Um and, and they're often not taken seriously and, and asked that question. And so that to me, I think is is where we need to move is to take the revolutionary charters that they've written seriously. Um there has been a civilian gathering in Addis Ababa uh, recently, but it's, again, mostly elites and the resistance committees have not joined. And that also should give us pause, right? It sh- we should be asking um, what kind of forms need to be established for resistance and under what conditions, right, under what terms um, do they need to be created in order for resistance committees to participate, right, yes. members of the resistance committees, some of whom are now in exile. Um, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's really important, fascinating how the resistance communities themselves have been organized and what work they're doing under very difficult conditions. Um, One of the other things that you've mentioned that I wanted to just dive into a little bit further is um, your use of the term kind of Arab identified or, or African identified um, communities. I wanted to discuss with you a little bit more about identities, sure. um, because I think it's really a, a key from, again, from the outside or how things are painted, you know, well outside of the the context. Um, there's a, There have been these tropes or narratives around um, Arab versus African. And I think part of what's interesting about your work is an, an effort to trouble or destabilize and redress such markers as Arab and African, um, which is, I think, much more useful broadly, because then the ways in which these identities then get carried back into particular contexts and mobilized around the next stages of of um, strategy. So I was wondering how you can you know, explain to us the kind of relationship of the country's colonizing history, relationship to different peripheries. How do these identities uh, come to be placed or taken up, and um, and how are they maybe less a thing or solid than we might imagine? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, this is both a very important and difficult question to answer, especially as someone from Central Sudan. Um, I often hesitate to answer it because I think it there is such a um, there's important historical context to this question that is hard to provide in you know short amount of time. Um, but I mean, I think one of the important things to, to remember is that you know, and I'll, I'll go now back to the 19th century um, during the Ottoman Empire. So I do my research, you know, in Central Sudan. Um, kind of the seat of power, if you will. Um, it's a place where a lot of elites, you know, in government have, you know, come from um, both, I would say, yeah, the North and the, the central part of, of Sudan where I'm from. Um, and which is why it was significant that I think the revolution crystallized at that moment where even those uh, rural communities were starting to kind of rise up around these, uh, these kind of neoliberal Restructuring of the rural economy and, and people feeling like their livelihoods were being decimated, but who had not experienced the same kind of state violence that uh, people had been experiencing in in the peripheries, really since independence, if you will. Okay. Um, and so, during the Ottoman Empire, um, the, the taxation system, and I'm going to sort of, you know, do a very Maybe unnuanced uh, take on you know uh, rendering of this, but
1: it will be nuanced for for us <laughs> educating everyone. Thank you. Yeah.
2: So you know during the Ottoman Empire, the taxation system um, that was imposed on small farmers um, required them to, or uh, essentially um, made them go into debt, right? And as a result, they sold their land to um, local domestic land holding elites and so we saw during that time a kind of consolidation of uh land in the hands of you know the concentration of land in in the hands of few and fewer people and those same people um who were dispossessed in that process uh became slave traders um captured um you know people in the south um brought them up to this um region of the country um who then became Workers, you know, enslaved people um, working on these plantations, essentially, and many of us in Central Sudan, uh, our family lineage, um, you know, uh, I have people in my family who are of enslaved descent, um, and and the system of slavery did not end until the 1950s, um, and landlessness and enslaved descent is maps onto it itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned this to say that in the early 2000s, when people in the United States were talking about conflicts, genocide, war in Sudan, it was often um, talked about in these very stark kind of binary terms, African versus Arab, Christian versus Muslim, uh, center versus periphery. And while there is a truth to all of that, it's of course a lot more complex than that and the center has its own um hierarchies and histories of enslavement um and um uh, yeah kind of yeah racialized hi- and gendered hierarchies right in some ways some of these constructions are or, or some of these categories are constructed for the for the purpose of maintaining an extractive war economy uh of um yeah, kind of violently uh, maintaining, as I said, this ethno-nationalist, uh, really fascist, um, you know, uh, genocidal state. Um, and, you know, I often go back to the late John Garang, um, who's a Southern Sudanese um, leader, um, who had a vision for a new Sudan uh, that addressed these kind of root causes and that, that named the ways that, Uh, ethnicity and race has been mobilized um, to the benefit of elites. Um, So yeah, I don't know if this really answers your question fully, but um, I think part of me is challenged by the fact that for me, as a central Sudanese, it's important to name that what happened in Darfur in 2003 was a genocide. Um, And that what is happening today is very similar to that. Uh, And that in some ways it never ended. Mm-hmm. you know it evolved it took on different forms but it never ended mm-hmm. um what is also important for me to name is that we have not dealt with the root causes of this violence mm-hmm. uh, and the revolution attempted to do so um but it was co-opted um those who were asking for us to really uh, deal with those root causes were marginalized um and so that's I think partly why we see history repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Part of what I forgot to mention in the historical context is that after independence, and this is where we can trace some of this back to the British, because I had started with the Ottomans. I want to make sure I include the British to mm-hmm. here too. Mm-hmm. Is that um, when the British left in 1956? Um, left is not the right word, but you know, <laughs> um, they um, uh, there were 800 administrative seats that were kind of left open right for Sudanese Elites to fill um of those 800 seats uh six went um to uh people in South Sudan and and only one to uh a Darfurian mm-hmm. um, and the size of Darfur right so it's about yeah it's about the size of Texas um so that's I think partly where things began right is that um people have since um in peripheral regions of sudan been calling for political representation um, forms of regional aut- autonomy and self-determination but also in part because you know without representation in government um the distribution of development funds um uh yeah it, you know the country developed unevenly right starting in during colonialism right with the kind of uh Focus on the metropole to the port. Um, so when I was in Darfur in two thousand nine, you could feel the ways that, um, and I, I was thinking of, of Walter Rodney, right? Of the ways that Darfur was purposefully underdeveloped, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of infrastructure, education, healthcare, roads, hospitals, etc. And so I think, again, part of what John Garang was articulating in the New Sudan is how we can construct citizenship in a way um, that everybody is equal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that maps itself onto race and gender and class and so mm-hmm. forth. Yeah.
1: In some ways, you know, that um, the desire to co-opt or, or move beyond the revolution for, for power to re-establish itself in slightly shifted um forms uh, um you know as you say the the underlying currents um have not been addressed and so um while the the moment that brings us here to talk together is one in which there is this really horrific violence and it's deep um um, um led violence from a long period of time um and another way sudan continues i think to give us this hope but through the bottom up demands of the people which are heterogeneous right which mm-hmm. come from different places different connection to land different connection to labor different backgrounds and identities but but these continual you know mobilizations of the demand for Public services for peace, for stability, for um, community, for for a, a revolution—you know, a real democratic future for Sudan. And in that way, I think you know what you've shared with us is so important because it sheds light on the structural forces that continue to um, uh, create these trajectories, but also, in many ways, a way forward. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ufahamu Africa. You can find more episodes, show notes, and transcripts on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. This podcast is produced and managed by Megan DeMint, with help from production assistants Chukufunanya Ikechukwu, Alex Kozak, and Ami Tamaklo. We are generously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and receive research assistance from Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Our music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Until next week, safiri salama.